We turn in God's Word to Romans chapter 6. Romans chapter 6. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid. How shall we that are dead to sin live any longer therein? Know ye not? that so many of us as were baptized into Jesus Christ were baptized into his death. Therefore, we are buried with him by baptism into death, that like as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. For if we have been planted together in the likeness of his death, we shall be also in the likeness of his resurrection. Knowing this, that our old man is crucified with him, that the body of sin might be destroyed, that henceforth we should not serve sin. For he that is dead is freed from sin. Now, if we be dead with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him, knowing that Christ, being raised from the dead, dieth no more, death hath no more dominion over him. For in that he died, he died unto sin once, but in that he liveth, he liveth unto God. Likewise, reckon ye also yourselves to be dead indeed unto sin, but alive unto God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Let not sin, therefore, reign in your mortal body, that ye should obey it in the lusts thereof. Neither Yield ye your members as instruments of unrighteousness unto sin, but yield yourselves unto God as those that are alive from the dead, and your members as instruments of righteousness unto God. For sin shall not have dominion over you, for ye are not under the law, but under grace. What then? Shall we sin because we are not under the law, but under grace? God forbid. Know ye not that to whom ye yield yourselves servants to obey his servants ye are, to whom ye obey, whether of sin unto death or of obedience unto righteousness? But God be thanked that ye were the servants of sin, but ye have obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine which was delivered you. Being then made free from sin, ye became the servants of righteousness. 
I speak after the manner of men because of the infirmity of your flesh. For as ye have yielded your members servants to uncleanness and to iniquity unto iniquity, even so now yield your members servants to righteousness unto holiness. For when ye were the servants of sin, ye were free from righteousness. What fruit had ye then in those things whereof ye are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. But now being made free from sin and become servants to God, ye have your fruit unto holiness and the end everlasting life. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Thus far we read God's holy word. Our text is verses 1 and 2. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid. How shall we that are dead to sin live any longer therein? Beloved, the word then in verse 1 is an inference. What shall we say then? An inference is a conclusion. If what is taught in the context is true, what shall our conclusion be? And the context is the end of chapter 5. Where sin abounded, grace did much more abound. And then the inference or the conclusion is, if grace abounded where sin abounded, shall we then continue in sin? And I might call that inference, or I might call that conclusion, the devil's logic. If the more we sin, the more God's grace abounds in forgiving sin, then we should sin as much as possible. That is, I say, the devil's Logic. We should increase our sins. We should multiply our sins. And the devil loves that logic. He wants us to sin grossly and freely and presumptuously. And our flesh, the old man within us, he loves that logic too. Our flesh also wants to sin freely and grossly and presumptuously. And if we give our flesh an excuse, he will take it and he will run with it. And the answer to the devil's logic, or as I might call it, the logic of hell, is found in Romans 5 verse 21. 
that as sin hath reigned unto death, even so might grace reign through righteousness unto eternal life by Jesus Christ our Lord. Where grace abounds at the end of chapter 5, it also reigns or it also rules. Where grace abounds, it sets itself, itself up as king upon the throne of our lives. Where grace abounds, it rules in our hearts, in our minds, in our souls, and in our wills. And when it does so, it dethrones that sin which used to rule. And so the reign or the rule of grace marks the end of the reign or rule of sin. Moreover, the end of chapter 5 tells us where grace reigns or where grace rules, it does so through righteousness. Where grace is a king, it brings the life where it reigns into conformity to God's standard. So the end of chapter 5 really leads us into the beginning of chapter 6, and chapter 6 then really is an extended commentary on the truth set forth at the end of chapter 5. A commentary on this idea, grace reigning through righteousness. And where grace reigns through righteousness, and here's the apostle's first point in the chapter, where grace rules through righteousness, we cannot continue in sin. Notice then, our continuing in sin impossible. Our continuing in sin impossible. Notice first, a foolish argument rejected, and second, a compelling reason given. In verse 1, the apostle anticipates or expects an argument, and like a good teacher, he answers it. And this argument is foolish, even wicked, but on the surface, it appears reasonable. And the argument appears reasonable because it begins with a true premise. The true premise is this. We are saved by the grace of God without our works. The true premise is this. God's goal in our salvation is the praise of the glory of his grace. The true premise is this. God wills that in our salvation, 
His grace be magnified or multiplied. It might abound, increase in our salvation. And the arguer here understands this, or he seems to understand this, for he says, let us continue in sin that grace may abound. And so he seems to be concerned about God's grace and its abounding or increasing. So I say that the argument begins with the right premise, and thus it is a dangerous argument. Let's look at that argument and its premise more closely. If we are saved by grace alone, by faith alone, without our works, shall we continue in sin? We are saved by grace alone, by faith alone, without our works. The premise is true. Is then the conclusion or deduction not also true? We should continue in sin. Our good works contribute nothing to our salvation. Shall we then continue in sin? Again, our good works do indeed contribute nothing to our salvation. The premise is true. Is then not the conclusion also true that we should continue in sin? God forgives all of our sins, past, present, and future, on the basis of Christ's atonement. Shall we continue in sin? God does indeed forgive all of our sins, past, present, and future, on the basis of Christ's atonement. The premise again is true. Is not then the conclusion also true? So you see here a foolish argument based upon a true premise. Let's apply that to ourselves so that we begin to understand the force of the argument here. Young people, you go, many of you, to Covenant Christian High School. The Covenant, as you have been taught from your earliest days, is a relationship of friendship and fellowship with God in Jesus Christ, and that covenant is unconditional. And that means that our relationship with God does not depend on what we do. How then do you respond to that teaching? Do you say... Well, that means that I should live like the young people of the world. I should get drunk. I should do drugs. I should sleep around like the teenagers of this world. Godliness doesn't matter then. 
living a life that pleases God doesn't matter then. Obedience to God's commandments doesn't matter then. Or I can, because the covenant is unconditional, doesn't depend upon me, I can bully my classmates at school. I can be disrespectful to my parents at home or my teachers at school. And I can do all of this and still be a child of God, enjoying God's salvation and having God's favor upon me and experiencing the smile of my God upon me. I ask you, young people, is there anything apart from the fear of your parents that makes you avoid sin and live in holiness? Shall we continue in sin, asks the arguer here. How do you respond to that? Or members of the congregation and others who might hear my words as they go forth online, apply this to yourselves. You are a member of the Protestant Reformed Churches a confessing member raised in the church, baptized and catechized, a regular attender, an active member. And the hallmark of PRC theology is, as you know, salvation by grace alone. And the hallmark of PRC theology is the unconditional covenant of grace. How then do you respond to that teaching? Do you say, well, that means I can live however I please like the world and still go to heaven? Do you say that means that how I treat my spouse at home or how I treat my children at home does not matter? Do you say that means I can give up reading God's Word, neglect prayer and public worship, and nothing really is affected? Does that mean I can multiply idols in my life? I can live in malice and envy. I can hate God and my neighbor. It doesn't matter. Shall we continue in sin? There's the argument. How do we then respond to that? But what does it mean to continue in sin? Clearly here, the apostle has more in mind than simply saying, shall we sin? Because we all know the sad truth of our Christian experience is that we all of us, even the holiest of believers, we all of us, we sin. We have a sinful flesh. There is within us those sinful tendencies, and we have those sins in our lives. Sin spoils our works. Sin cleaves to us. But the apostle does not write here, shall we sin, but shall we continue in sin, which is a slightly different idea. 
The word continue here is a significant one. At its most basic, the word continue means to stay for a considerable period of time in a certain place or to continue doing something for a considerable period of time. In 1 Corinthians 16, verse 8, it is rendered tarry. I will tarry at Ephesus, says the apostle, until Pentecost. In Acts 12, verse 16, it is rendered continue, but Peter continued knocking. And the idea then is that Paul remained in Ephesus for a considerable period of time, and that Peter persisted in knocking for a period of time until the door was opened to him. And this word continue then can also be applied to spiritual things. In Acts 13, verse 43, we read, Paul and Barnabas, who speaking to them, persuaded them to continue in the grace of God. 1 Timothy 4, 16, take heed to thyself and unto the doctrine, continue in them. And now apply that idea of continuing to sin. Shall we continue in sin? Shall we persist in sinning? Shall we continue to make sin our practice? Shall we walk in sin? If our sin is idolatry, shall we continue to multiply idols? If our sin is blasphemy, shall we continue to abuse God's name? If our sin is Sabbath desecration, shall we continue to work on the Sabbath day and continue to neglect the public worship of God? If our sin is disobedience to authority, shall we continue to dishonor our parents, teachers, and other authorities? If our sin is murder, shall we continue to hate wound and kill our neighbor with malice and cruelty? If our sin is adultery, shall we continue to live in uncleanness, defiling ourselves? If our sin is lying, shall we continue to speak falsehood, slander, and gossip? If our sin is covetousness, shall we continue to be greedy, indulging our sins, lusts, and pleasures. Shall we continue in this? Shall we persist in this? Shall we persevere in this? And then there's the word in. Shall we continue in sin? And here we, by this word in, identify the sphere 
in which this continuing is going to occur. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 16, verse 8, he tarries in Ephesus. That's where he is going to make his abode. That is where he's going to stay for a while. Here, the question is, shall we continue in sin? Acts 13.43, the believers there were persuaded to continue in the grace of God. They believed the grace of God. They lived in that grace of God. Here the question is, shall we continue in sin? And so think then of that word in, in terms of the environment or the place or the sphere in which something happens or continues to happen. A fish continues in water. That's where the fish lives. That's its environment. That's where the fish belongs. That's where the fish needs to be. That's where the fish feels at home. And then the question is, shall we, believers in Christ Jesus, shall we continue in sin? Shall sin be the environment where we live? Shall sin be where we belong? Shall sin be where we live? Shall sin be where we make our abode? Will sin be where we need to be and where we feel at home? The question is not, notice, shall we commit sin? Sadly, we shall commit sin. Nor is the question, shall we continue to be sinful? Sadly, we shall continue to be sinful because we have that sinful flesh which cleaves to us. But the question is rather this, shall we continue to commit sin as our constant, persistent practice? Shall sin be to us as water is to a fish, or as the air is to a bird? Shall sin be our natural environment? Shall sin be something that we delight in, that we enjoy, that we desire to continue in, and that we do indeed continue in? That is the question that this arguer at the beginning of Romans 6 brings, that is the question which the apostle is going to answer. And I say that this argument seems to be reasonable because it begins with God's grace. And here is where a seemingly reasonable, a seemingly logical argument becomes devilish. Shall we continue in sin? Here's the purpose in this person's mind. Here's the purpose for one continuing in sin. Shall we continue in sin that 
grace may abound. This person who is arguing this, this person seems to have a high view of God's grace. He loves God's grace, you might say. He preaches God's grace. He teaches God's grace. He wants God's grace to abound. He wants God's grace to increase, to multiply, and to be magnified. Is that not a good goal? We know, of course, what grace is. We love God's grace in our churches. God's grace is that beauty of God's perfect character. We worship our God in the beauty of holiness. And our great desire then is that his grace, the grace of the God of all grace, should abound. God's grace is that beautiful attitude of favor that God has toward us who are unworthy sinners. In his grace, he wills to bless us, and he does bless us. God's grace has as its source unconditional election as it flows to us from God's eternal decree. God's grace is displayed to us in the cross of Jesus Christ, where Christ died for our sins. God's grace is worked in us by the Holy Spirit. We love to hear about God's grace. We love to see God's grace magnified and displayed in our Savior. We love to see that grace displayed in our own lives, in the lives of our fellow saints. We desire that God's grace should abound. God's grace is his power to deliver us from the shameful vileness of our sins and to make us spiritually beautiful with the beauty of Jesus Christ, who is the image of God. And we love to see the power of God's grace in our lives and in the lives of fellow believers. We love to see God's grace make us holy and uphold us in our trials. And we say, may God's grace abound. That's what we want We want God's grace to abound. We want God's grace to be magnified and to increase. And here comes the devil as he puts this word in the mouth of this arguer. God's grace is magnified in the forgiveness of sins. Therefore, let us continue in sin. God's grace, says the arguer, is displayed in justifying sinners. Let us continue in sin so that God will justify us. God's grace, says the arguer, is free, unmerited, and unconditional. Let us continue in sin. And here he says is the bonus. The bonus is this. If we continue in sin, God's grace shall abound. You want God's grace to abound, do you not? And if you really want God's grace to abound, then here is what you should do. 
continue in sin. Sin freely, sin grossly, sin presumptuously, sin persistently. And if you sin more, then God will have to forgive you more. And those sins then are forgiven by the grace of God, and so God's grace abounds as He forgives those sins, and so sin as much as you can. If you live ungodly, well, doesn't God justify the ungodly? And so the more ungodliness that you have, the more God has to justify. And justification, remember, is gracious, and therefore the more ungodly you are, the more gracious God is. Sin, freely, presumptuously, persistently, grossly, be as ungodly as you can. In fact, says the arguer, if you do not sin much, then God's grace in your life will hardly have anything to do. And God's grace in your life then will not abound or multiply or increase, but shall in fact decrease and shrink. And so, sin freely and grossly and presumptuously, and then God will be extra gracious to you. And God will be glorified by your persistent, gross, presumptuous sinning. There's the argument, beloved. Shall we continue in sin that, so that, with the purpose that, Grace may abound. And what, beloved, is your response to that? Perhaps you cannot think of a sophisticated theological argument in response to that. Perhaps you cannot think of a good rebuttal to contradict that. But here is I trust the response of your heart and soul. This was the response of the Apostle Paul. God forbid. God forbid. May it never be. Perish the thought. Here is the apostles' immediate response to this idea, God forbid. And those words, God forbid, are found frequently in the New Testament. Literally, God forbid is, may it not be. May it not be. B, these words always express then a strong desire that something not be true, a strong desire that something not happen. 
These words always express a strong rejection of something, even abhorrence for something. Romans 9.14, Paul writes, What shall we then say? Is there unrighteousness with God? God forbid. The very idea that there should be unrighteousness with God is abhorrent to the Apostle Paul. And the very idea that we could continue in sin with the idea that by continuing in sin that God's grace might abound is detestable to the Apostle Paul and by God's grace, I trust, is also detestable to us. This answer is not logical or exegetical or theological necessarily. This answer is the spontaneous response of the heart of the child of God. God forbid. May it never be. In fact, if such salvation were possible, we wouldn't want it. Imagine that God came to us and said to us, I will forgive your sins. You will be justified. You will be delivered from the guilt of sin. I will not punish you for your sin, but you will continue to live in sin, under sin's power, in sin's bondage, as a slave or a servant to sin all the days of your life. God forbid, may it not be. Or imagine God says to us, I will justify you, but I won't sanctify you. And so, you shall remain in the filth, pollution, vileness, and shame of your sin all the days of your life, although I will forgive you for your sin. Again, we would say, God forbid, may it not be. An unbeliever would love that. An unbeliever would think that is a wonderful way of salvation. Forgiven, spared hell, no fear of punishment, and I can also continue in sin. A carnal person would love that too. Forgiven, and then live in sin as much as you like. But the child of God, who knows the grace of God, says, God forbid. If I am saved, I must be saved from the guilt and the power and the bondage and the pollution and the defilement and the shame of sin. And I am. Praise God, I am. 
If I am saved, I must be saved so that I do not continue in sin, in that sin that I have come to detest by the grace of God. And if I am saved, I must be delivered from sin so that I am able then to serve the God whom I love. Anything less is not salvation. Anything less is not the abounding of the grace of God in Jesus Christ. Anything less is the ugly tyrant of sin masquerading himself as the grace of God. Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid. But the apostle has more to say than simply dismissing it with a God forbid. He has also a theological reason for his God forbid. His theological argument is this. How shall we that are dead to sin live any longer therein? Or more literally, we, the ones who died to sin, how shall we live any longer in it. The point that the apostle makes here is this. Our relationship to sin has changed. There's more to salvation, beloved, than simply God forgiving us. Our relationship to sin Has changed. There was a time when we lived in sin, and now we are dead to sin. Verse 2 Living in sin is what the Bible calls being dead in sin sin. The classic passage here is Ephesians chapter 2, the first three verses of that chapter, and you hath he quickened who were dead in trespasses and sins, wherein in time past ye walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience, among whom also we all had our conversation in times past in the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature the children of wrath, even as others. We were dead in trespasses and sins. But now we have a different relationship to sin. It used to be that our environment or habitat, our natural environment, was sin. It used to be the case that sin to us was like water to a fish. 
We lived there. We felt comfortable there. We delighted to be there. There used to be a time in the past when sin was to us as mud is to a pig. We wallowed in it. It was our life, and we knew nothing else but to sin. Perhaps you don't remember that much because you grew up in the church, but the Ephesians certainly did, who grew up as pagans and heathens, and the Romans certainly did, who grew up in idolatry. They remembered the time when they were dead in their trespasses and sins, but that has changed. We're no longer dead in sin. Now we are dead to sin. And that's a very different thing. We are dead to sin because literally the apostle writes, we have died to sin. Something happened to us in the past. We died to sin and now we are dead to sin. Our relationship to sin has changed. Therefore, first, it changed from a legal point of view. Sin was our Lord. Sin was our master. Sin was our king. Sin held sway in our lives. Sin sat upon the throne of our hearts to fill our minds with perverse and wicked things. It directed our wills. It employed the members of our bodies in its service, the service of evil. And that's because we fell in Adam. We were guilty in him. And by the righteous judgment of God, we were sold into the power of sin so that sin, says the apostle at the end of the previous chapter, sin hath reigned, ruled like a king. It ruled like a king also in us. And that's misery. To have sin rule over you like a miserable, cruel tyrant demanding your service. And second, our relationship to sin has changed also from a spiritual point of view because remember, we were not unwilling servants of sin. Sin is not a matter of compulsion so that a man is forced against his will to sin. If that were the case, it would be conceivable perhaps that some of those who are in bondage to sin might desire to be delivered from that sin and might attempt to rebel against the king who is called sin. But Sin rules us in such a way, or it ruled us in the past in such a way, that the sinner willingly serves sin and therefore never even thinks of attempting to escape from the rule of sin. 
Sin's power held us in such a way that we willingly, even gladly, even greedily served sin. Sinners are held fast by their own lusts and desires. And that's why sin is inescapable. It's such a bondage that the sinner never desires to be set free. His heart is captivated by that sin. His soul is enthralled by sin. His will delights in sin. And thus the sinner is deceived by sin until one day he wakes up in hell. And even then, the sinner in hell still loves his sin. In hell, he continues to gnash his teeth in futile rebellion against God forever. He is never delivered from his sin. But we are, by God's grace, we are delivered from the power of sin. Our relationship to sin has changed, says the apostle, and this happened when we died. Verse 2 literally says, We the ones who died to sin, how shall we still live in it? We died to sin. And think of death. What is death? Well, death is a number of things, but death is certainly this. Death is the end of a relationship, both its legal obligations and its enjoyment. Death ends earthly relationships. If a woman is married to a man, that relationship ends when she dies. And if the marriage was happy, well then, the sweet communion of marriage comes to an end, is cut off by death. And if the marriage was miserable, even an abusive relationship, well, the misery of that marriage relationship ends at death also. The relationship ends at death. And legal obligations also end at death. If you are in debt and a creditor is harassing you to get that debt, to get that loan repaid, the creditor cannot pursue you for debt after you have died. And if a prosecutor is seeking to indict you and bring charges against you, criminal charges to convict you, he cannot do that if you die. Death ends the relationship. Death ends the legal relationship. And that's true also with respect to our relationship to sin. Sin had a right to rule over us until we died. 
And now we are dead to sin, having died. And so sin had a right to demand our service. Sin had a right to control our heart and mind and soul and will. Sin had a right to employ the members of our bodies in order to fulfill its desires. And that right ended when we died. We died to sin. We're dead to sin because we died to sin. And therefore, when sin comes, and sin will come, and sin's always coming to us, temptation comes to us, and sin says to us, serve me. I'm your master. I'm your Lord. I'm your king. Serve me. You used to serve me. Keep serving me. Get drunk, do drugs, watch pornography, dishonor your parents, worship idols, live in malice, envy, and hatred. Be a backbiter, be a slanderer, serve me. Our response to sin and temptation is and must be, sin, be gone. You used to be my king, You used to be my Lord. You used to be my master. But I have died to you. I'm dead to sin. I'm dead to you. Our relationship is over. I will no longer live unto you. I will no longer serve you because I died to you. And how did that happen? How did we die to sin with the result now that we are dead to sin? It happened in and through Jesus Christ. When Jesus Christ died on the cross for us, two very important things occurred. First, Jesus paid the penalty for all of our sins and thus obtained pardon the forgiveness of all of our sins. That's the main thing you might say, the thing we emphasize most. But second, and that's the emphasis in Romans chapter 6, second, Jesus, by his death on the cross, severed or broke that relationship that existed between us and sin. When Jesus died for us, We died with him. We died in him. We died to sin. And the apostle is going to describe that in further detail in the verses to come. He's going to show the Romans, here are the benefits which flow to you from the cross of Jesus Christ with the result that you have died to sin and are dead to sin. And those benefits then are applied in our lifetime. 
purchased for sure on the cross some 2,000 years ago, but applied to us in this life. Notice also, sin did not die. We died. That's an important point. The apostle does not ask, how shall we, to whom sin is dead, live any longer in sin? But rather he asks, how shall we who are dead or who have died to sin live any longer therein? There's a big difference, of course, between those two things. If sin had died, and it didn't, but if sin had died, then it would have no more power to tempt us, to harass us, to annoy us, to attract us. We know, of course, by our own personal experience that that's not true. Sin still has that power to tempt us, harass us, annoy us. But sin does not have the power to rule us. And therefore, if we allow sin into our life, and that's sadly very possible, then we suffer the consequences of our own foolishness. And we deny what is true, that we have died to sin. And God will bring painful chastisement into our lives to bring us to repentance, to bring us to our spiritual senses again. You died to sin. You're allowing sin to rule over you again. You can't do that. How shall we? How shall we who are dead to sin? How shall we who have died to sin live any longer therein? So the conclusion is, beloved, we might fall into sin, but we cannot continue in sin. We might be tempted to sin and even succumb to that temptation, but we can never be happy in that sin because sin is no longer our natural environment. We've died to it. And so God's grace then does not abound when we continue in sin. God forbid. God's grace rather abounds where God not only forgives our sins, but also delivers us from the power and bondage of sin so that we no longer live in sin. And that's because we are dead or we have died to the power of sin. And when we died, we were released from the tyranny and misery of our old master, our old Lord. We die to sin, 
so that by grace we are now able to serve a new master, even Jesus Christ, who reigns in us by righteousness. Amen. Our Father in heaven, we thank thee for thy word. Use thy word to sanctify us. Use thy word to build us up and to comfort us. Use thy word even to warn us so that we walk not as we used to walk, as those who were in bondage to sin, but we might walk as those who are free, free from that sin, free to serve thee, the living God, through thy Son, Jesus Christ, who reigns and rules in us in righteousness. For Christ's sake we ask it. Amen.